do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our Patreon community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. In these interviews, I'm talking to people who are scaling up the regenerative agriculture sector, either by increasing the inflow of investment capital or by scaling up the enterprises on and in the ground. And by doing so, exploring what it means to be an impact investor in regenerative agriculture. Why am I focused on regenerative agriculture? Because the roots of so many of the issues we're facing in the world today can be found in agriculture. From droughts, migrant flows, obesitas, social issues, water wars, climate change, hunger, they all have a connection to how we treat the land, grow food and what we eat. I hope you will enjoy this interview as much as I did making it. If you have any comments, please share them on SoundCloud or Twitter. And if you think this content is relevant or interesting for someone else, please feel free to share the interview. You're going to listen to an interview with the writer of the books Dirt and Growing a Revolution, David R. Montgomery. We discussed the world's oldest problem, the loss of soil fertility, and how David went from being a pessimist to being a cautious optimist, and what made him believe that this time it's different. Enjoy! So welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kumo Sain, your host, and in the podcast of today, I'm joined by David R. Montgomery, a MacArthur Fellow and writer of the book Growing a Revolution, where he makes a passionate pledge for building soil by ditching the plough, covering soil, and diversifying crop rotations. He has traveled the world visiting farmers, large and small, traditional and organic, who are very successfully building soil and going against most of modern agriculture science. I'm going to ask him all about what he learned and what needs to happen to scale this. Welcome, David. Oh, thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start with a personal question, as a geologist, how did you end up in regenerative agriculture? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's a long story, but I'll give you the quick version of it. Now we have time. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the kind of geologist who works on uh, landscape evolution. So I'm a geomorphologist. And as part of that, I learned to study soil erosion because erosion is how landscapes get shaped. And when you're looking at soil erosion, the other half of the equation is soil production. So I've, you know, I've trained to look at the balance between the rates that soils are produced and the rates that soils are eroded over geologic time, over long time frames. And I, the second popular book that I wrote was, it was called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations that looked back at the problem of soil erosion through history and that merged archaeology and geology. And it turned out that by the time I was done writing that book, I had written a history of farming. 
and because the the practice of plowing the soil was something that had led to topsoil loss that had impacted civilizations around the world, you know, time and again through history. And this ended up leading me to start thinking about soil as a system that could be influenced by human actions and not just over geologic time. And I got really interested in the, the effects of farming practices, uh, you know, how we have traditionally farmed, how we're farming today. And that eventually led me to think about the, uh, whether we could reverse the problem of soil erosion and degradation. And to do that, I got into looking at uh, farmers who'd restored their soil on farms around the world. And that led me right into the world of regenerative agriculture, because that's really what regenerative agriculture is all about, is rebuilding the fertility of the soil as a consequence of farming and reversing this long history that I wrote about in the dirt book. So the dirt book and the growing revolution book are kind of bookends of looking at the nature of the problem and realizing how to actually solve it. You call it in the book and it's even a chapter, the mankind's oldest problem. I, I don't know if I got the chapter title exactly right, but it's the one thing we've been battling with every century and, and many civilizations have gone under because of that. What, what makes it different this time? Why would we be... I wouldn't say arrogant, but be optimistic enough to think, okay, this time we got it right and we, we can actually um, build a system that is more anti-fragile and more, more sustainable in the long term. Well, there's, there's, uh, that question kind of encapsulates the story of my transformation from something of a pessimist about this problem when I was writing dirt and looking at the, the, the history of uh, land abuse over the century. You call it dirt, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that's what if we basically take soil, you know, a healthy, fertile, life-filled soil, and we um, lose the organic matter and we lose the native fertility, we're turning it into dirt, uh, something that just has the geology and not the biology. And it's the combination that makes for healthy, fertile soil. Um, but the, you know, what really sort of turned me around in going from being a pessimist on the issue to being an optimist on the issue was seeing examples of modern farmers who had actually pulled it off, who'd actually uh, adapted their practices in ways that rebuilt the organic matter, rebuilt the fertility of their land, and they did it through intensive farming. And this was a, you know, a very optimistic thing because if we can change that pattern of soil degradation as a consequence of farming into one of soil building as a consequence of farming, we could solve that really old problem. And what really makes it possible now is I think a few things. There's on the one hand, we, we've learned a lot uh, and we've got examples of farmers who have done it that we can learn from as, as I did. And there's if we combine the ancient wisdom of things like crop rotations and uh, planting legumes and diversifying our our, um, our our rotations so we're not just growing one or two things time and time again in the same field. Those things are really ancient wisdom that have been used by traditional societies around the world, but that also use the plow. And it's the disturbance of the land through tillage, through plowing, that has led to the long-term slow degradation of soil fertility by disrupting mycorrhizal fungi that help feed the plants and by um, um, uh, burning down uh, soil organic matter over time. Um, we now have modern technologies that we can use to couple those ancient ideas of crop rotations and um, um, keeping the ground covered with cover crops and more diverse rotations, we can couple that with less disturbance, either no-till or minimal tillage uh, applications. And you put those three things together under the label of conservation agriculture, and you've got a new sort of style and philosophy of farming 
that really seems to work to build soil fertility because it's those three things done together, minimizing the disturbance, in effect, feeding the soil organic matter through cover cropping and diversifying rotations, which helps with uh, micronutrient provisioning and pest suppression. That allows us to build up soil organic matter, which can restart a lot of the, the biological processes that are essential toward, to native soil fertility, sort of nature's way of farming. And the other half of that, so we have this knowledge of how to put these pieces together into a new system of farming that really seems to work. And on the other hand, there's the economic pressures that have effect, they're affecting um, modern farming, where if you go talk to most farmers, they're not really anxious to pay a lot more for fertilizers and uh, pesticides because, and, or diesel. Those are really high ticket items in terms of modern farming. We, we rely on them a lot. And they're actually have become progressively more expensive in terms of, of um, on-farm economics. While at the same time, the large harvests that we've been producing in the 20th and 21st centuries have depressed the prices for the, the commodity crops that a lot of farmers in the developed world grow. They're in a squeeze, basically. Yeah, exactly. They're in this squeeze where they've gotten so good at growing so much stuff that the price they get for their product is depressed especially relative to their value, since it's the one thing everybody needs other than water and air. <laughs> and at the same time, the cost of the inputs that they've been trained to rely on to produce those harvests have gone through the roof. So they're caught in a squeeze in the middle. And, and you see that play out in, uh, in my country, the United States, for example, with the great decline of the family farms and the growing size of farms. The old adage of get big or get out that was thrown around in the 1970s was a direct uh, consequence of that. And so what gives me hope is that we've learned this sort of new way of farming uh, that can build soil fertility. And as a consequence of that, it allows for the farmers that I visited to spend less on diesel because they're not using their tractors as much. They're not tilling as much. They spend less on fertilizer because they've rebuilt their native fertility of their land enough that they can cut their fertilizer use by a half to 90 percent or more. And they aren't using anywhere near as much in the way of pesticides. And so that's greatly reducing their input costs. And what happened to their yields? They either were maintained or they went up over time. So they're growing, they're spending less to grow more. It's a good recipe for short-term farm economics. Um, and so we, we're at this juncture now where for one of the first times, as far as I can tell in history, the short-term economics for farmers really are lining up with the long-term interests of society in protecting and rebuilding the fertility of our of our land. There's a lot of what I talked about in the Dirt Book uh, looked at how short the short-term incentives to uh, maximize this year's return and this year's harvest led to the overuse of fertilizers, the overworking of land, um, and the progressive degradation of it over generations of farming. These two trends in terms of knowing, uh, figuring out how to do conservation agriculture and the sort of modern economic trends are really pointing in the direction of real optimism that we may be able to solve these problems. Because if, if farmers can do better by adopting them and they improve the fertility of their land in ways that reduces pollution, that uh, maintains our ability to feed everybody, but has side benefits of storing carbon in the ground and, um, protecting on-farm biodiversity, which is important given just the sheer acreage globally that is in agricultural land. Um, this is a real moment where these kinds of practices could catch on because the, it's not a question of ecology versus the environment. 
it's a real win-win scenario. Extremely interesting, that overview of the pressures and, and why the time is now. But still, I'm suspicious when somebody says, yeah, but this time it's different, especially if we have a few millennia of, of very different experiences with, uh, with soil and civilization. But you have, ex you have examples in the book where very simple measurement, the soil carbon in, uh, in, in soil is higher on some of your other farms you visited compared to a native forest. So there is something to it. What would you say to the skeptics that say, yeah, but everybody always says that this time it's different? Well, I would say that, you know, as a scientist, it's good to be a skeptic. That's exactly the right question one should be asking. Um, you know, why is it different this time? And I think there's sort of two angles to answering that. And the first one, the most sort of basic one, is that we have to get it right this time. We don't have any new places to go to <laughs> once we degrade farmland globally. You know, we have to, as a global society, we've got to learn how to farm in ways that will maintain the fertility of our land if we're going to be able to maintain the agricultural foundation of civilization. So at one, at, at one level, there's sort of a real imperative this time. Uh, and at the other level, um, the reason I can argue that it's different this time is I've visited farms around the world who've already done it. It's not, it's not abstract. It's not a theory. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I took six months off for my, my teaching job at the University of Washington to basically travel around the world and visit these farmers is I wanted to see for myself um, and not just sort of read about it or, or um, listen to people about it, but go to these farms, dig holes in the ground, look at their soil, learn the history of the farm, understand what they did to rebuild their soil, and then stand back and understand the farm economics that they went through, uh, and then stand back and try and draw the generalizations and patterns that one can from a, a series, a suite of experiences. And it's really this the, the sort of confluence of a new way of thinking about the soil that really is truly new in terms of combining these three practices of minimal disturbance, cover crops, and crop rotations. You can look back through history, and there's very few examples where people have put together that, that system in practice on the land at a large scale. Um, so there's sort of a new way of thinking, which is sort of the seeds of any sort of revolution in practice is they're preceded by a revolution in thought. And I see that we've gone through that in science. We've learned enough now about the role of microbial organisms and soil biology in soil fertility to start applying those ideas from a scientific perspective into the applied realm of agriculture. And it's changing the way we think about the land, we think about the soil and how we treat it. The fact that we know so much more about the soil, we're discovering more every day, I have the feeling. I see reports coming out of, of just the amount of things in there in, in a teaspoon, or the, depends on which one you read, that, that we didn't know maybe a year, two years, or five years ago. It's amazing. The whole world of sort of microbial science, not only in the soil, but also in like the human microbiome that's all over the news, um, where we're learning new things about the organisms that live within us. And the ways that they can actually benefit and bolster our health and promote our um, well-being is, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that was kind of crazy talk. And now it's all over the journals as people are understanding the mechanisms through which it works. So we've got this new scientific perspective that we can bring to bear on the problem. And we're also at a moment where the, the kinds of practices farmers have, are taught and trained to use are very much reliant on very expensive inputs that are not going to be getting any cheaper in the near future and that come with very um, real and increasing environmental and social costs in terms of the global carbon budget, but also in terms of things like uh, groundwater pollution in the American Midwest, for example, nitrate pollution in the 
the Gulf of Mexico. There's all kinds of forces that are, are sort of converging on the idea that if we could have a style of farming that wasn't necessarily organic, but that used less in the way of agrochemicals and you know, fertilizers, diesel and pesticides. And just to be clear, this is fundamentally less. It's not five or 10 percent. You're talking of examples of 18, 90 and, and most of them going in some phase completely off. Yeah, you know, at least at least off by half and in some cases up to 80, 90. And you can you can do these practices organically. So you could go completely off of them. Um, and, and if you could do that and still maintain our ability to feed everybody, uh, you know, our ability to maintain our harvests, uh, then that is a recipe. It's a setup for a whole new way of thinking about it. And if it's more profitable for farmers to do this, once they get through the transition, which I, I found to be remarkably short, um, it's, it's a setup for increasing adoption as people learn about it. Um, you know, and obviously it takes time for new ideas to filter out of the, the initial adopters who experiment with it and tinker and figure out how to make these practices work. And the people I visited around the world, you know, in, in equatorial Africa and Costa Rica and across North America, they had, in their words, made the mistakes <laughs> to try and figure out how it is to tailor these general principles of minimal disturbance, cover cropping, and um, diversified rotations, how to tailor that to their land, their economy, their climate, their soils. And once we've learned how to regionalize those general principles, then it's faster to get new farmers on board in terms of how to adopt them, because as these guys were saying, they've already made the mistakes. <laughs> um, so, so what's holding them back? What's holding their neighbors in, in Ghana on the farms you visited, but also in, in, in the U.S. and also in Costa Rica? What's holding them back so far? You know, there's a couple things. And I think that the biggest thing is that, you know, change is difficult. Uh, we, you know, we tend to want to continue doing things the way we've been doing them simply for the reason that that's the way we do things. <laughs> um, and so it can take a while for any kind of new idea to get out of the realm of the initial adapters and spread through people who might, who might benefit from it, who might actually be uh, interested in adopting it if they knew about it or if they knew how to do it. So there's, there's the, the inherent resistance to new ideas. Uh, there is the problem that a lot of people don't know about this and a lot of farmers don't know about it. And it goes, these three principles of minimal disturbance, cover cropping and diver diversified rotations really run 180 degrees counter to the conventional wisdom in most modern, um, um, in terms of the way that we've farmed for the last hundred years, sort of the modern conventional farming in the Western world where we use intensive tillage, a lot of fertilizer and pesticides, and we tend to grow one or two crops, functional monocultures. And, and also in organic, I mean, tillage is, is part of the organic movement, has been part for a long time. So even there, we see a lot of destruction. I did an interview with Sally Calhoun, an impact investor who rented out part of her land to an organic farmer. And, and at some point, she just took it back under her management because she saw that organic farmer keep plowing and plowing and plowing and plowing. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the things I learned in writing the, the dirt book uh, was that you know, when we look at the, the, the farming practices that, um, you know, helped take down classical Greece or uh, undermine the Roman Empire, it was not modern agrochemical farming. It was organic agriculture. And the key culprit there was excessive tillage, too much use and reliance on the plow. And there's, there's a lot of organic farms that, especially on any that are on any kind of sloping land and aren't on a river floodplain, um, you know, where tillage is, you know, causing lots of damage to the soil. Um, 
So it's it's really not a question of sort of conventional versus organic. It's a question of recalibrating the way we think about the soil and think about the land to try and adopt practices that build the microbial life that if it's working for us in the soil is a real advantage. It's more efficient, really, when you have these trillions of organisms per teaspoon of soil doing things in there that will promote the growth and health of your crops. That's a lot better than basically you know, spending a lot of time um, uh, and fossil fuel to work against them and, and undermine their ability to work for us. And that, that's sort of the essence of what we were doing with modern conventional farming. Um, so the, the real trick, I think, is to figure out how to adapt farming methods to cultivate that beneficial life in the soil. And there's a there's some general principles for how to go about doing that. And that's essentially what I learned by going and interviewing these farmers who had already done it because I didn't want to engage in abstract uh, speculation about it. I wanted to go to farms where you could go, OK, it used to be a half a percent organic matter or two percent organic matter. And these farmers had rebuilt their soil organic matter or their soil carbon content back up to, you know, on the order of five, six, eight, ten percent, um, you know, which is not coincidentally the same transition that I saw um, my wife do to our yard in North Seattle, where we live over the course of transforming um, our our side yard, which had been a lawn into a, a lush garden and the practices that she used there are very parallel in principle to the practices that these farmers use to restore life to their land uh, around the world. And, and what really comes out of the book as a key, you have to do all three. If you do two of the three and you're still plowing a lot, it, it simply doesn't work. I mean, these this three are working together, otherwise you're not restoring the soil. And, and that's probably, that's maybe what we forgot in many of the examples, many of the studies that have been on the organic side, etc. in the past. Um, decades is if you only look at two of the three or, or one of the three it, it simply isn't a complete system, system and simply doesn't work enough and, and you get these negative results yeah it does it doesn't reliably work uh, if you only use one or two legs of this three-legged stool of the system of conservation agriculture and there's and there's a fourth leg that one could add uh, which is livestock and reintegrating livestock um, animal husbandry into cropping systems um, and I go into that a little bit in the book but uh, it's, um, it wasn't the main emphasis of the book. And I think that, that you've just put your finger right on one of the big problems in terms of thinking about adoption is that in reviewing the literature, because, uh, you know, in addition to visiting farmers, I dug into the scientific literature because that's what I do for a living and tried to um, uh, sort of calibrate, if you will, what I was seeing and hearing in the field on their farms with what other people's experiences and what studies had found on different farms and in labs and academic settings around the world. And there's a real shortage of studies that have looked at the combination of all three practices. Uh, there's a lot of studies that will look just at, say, adopting no-till farming, uh, where you, you don't use the plow and instead... And a lot of herbicides, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you might use like massive amounts of herbicides, um, um, although there's some other techniques with cover crops that can get around that. But if you just look at no-till you see really mixed results in terms of soil building. Uh, and it depends a lot on sort of what you're doing in addition to the no-till. Or if you just look at cover crops, again, there's sort of mixed results. On average, better than not using them. Um, and with diversified rotations, again, you can see a boost from using them. But if you're doing full tillage in a mixed rotation, you don't get anywhere near the benefit that you get if you adopt all three of these practices together in a new system of farming. 
And there's one thing that scientists have really tend, tend to be very good at. It's isolating elements of a system so you can study those and sort of figure out, well, what's this piece doing? It's much harder to actually study the effectiveness of a whole system because you've got a lot more variables going on. It's a lot more complicated um, system to try and look at. And it doesn't lend itself to the sort of like clean academic tests of, well, what about this one little piece? But of course, that can cause a problem if it's the interaction among the pieces that's actually producing the effect. You know, consider, for example, uh, like a, a, an old fashioned watch, you know, sort of like an old wristwatch. You could take all the pieces, you could take one apart and you can understand how all the individual gears work. But if I took one apart, I'd never be able to put it back together because I don't understand the system of how the, all those pieces work together. And and I think in terms of conservation agriculture and this new philosophy of farming um, under a regenerative label, there's that problem in the sense that we need some long-term studies that look at how these pieces interact and work together because there's evidence out there on the land in real farms that they do work. I mean, I've dug holes, I've compared the soil structure, compared the soil carbon content, the soil life in these farmers' fields and the fields next door, and it's like night and day. It would be very useful to have a lot more attention uh, academically on studying that full system. And from what I can tell, it's the emphasis on cultivating the beneficial life in the soil that's really the catalyst for why it works so well. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that actually Sally Cowan, the woman I, I mentioned before, really struggled to find, even if they would pay for it, scientists and academics that wanted to follow the transition on their land because there wasn't a clear um, one to five year plan. No, they were going to do it adaptively and looking at what the soil needed year after year and, and adapting to that. And they were much more comfortable, they being the scientists, looking at their vineyard that they're starting to grow um, in, in a beyond organic way but the, the normal the normal terrain was just too difficult to grasp because it wasn't a clear we're going to do this type of vegetables for x amount of years and that's it no they were probably going to be a mix and they're probably going to change it and it's going to be adaptive so they were really struggling finding people that wanted to study or could study that yeah it really challenges the way we think about um you know how to set up scientific experiments in agriculture how to evaluate things and It also sort of goes against the grain of uh, the kinds of advice that people give to farmers. If you think about, at least in the United States, the kinds of people who are mostly advising farmers are usually trying to sell them things, and they're trying to sell them products, um, you know, whether it's an herbicide or a fertilizer or um, a new piece of equipment. And to adopt this new suite of practices, you do, if you are tillage-based, if you're working with the plow, you do need new equipment. You need a no-till planter, and John Deere will be happy to sell you one. Um, but the real transformation is in thinking about the land and the practices one adopts. And there's, there's very few, um, chemical supply companies that will encourage farmers to adopt practices that, re that enable them to use far less of their products. Just like I'm always very suspicious when petrol selling companies are, are telling you they're selling you something that uses less of their product. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, and there's there's this sort of classic thing in economics where if the price of of, of an energy source, for example, goes down, it can often use the uh, it can 
basically lead to using far more of it. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I mean, one of the things that I found interesting coming from a geological background on all this is, you know, I don't really have, I wasn't trained to believe that there's a particular way we should be farming or should not be farming. I sort of came in with an open mind, if you will. I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. And I wanted to go and visit farmers and see for myself how they had changed their land. And I came away deeply impressed with how fast they've been able to do it. And that the fundamental underlying thing that changed was how they thought about their soil. Um, and so in Growing a Revolution, I basically argue that this new way of thinking about the land and thinking about how to adapt these general principles of farming to particular places could be the foundation for a new agricultural revolution that's different than the previous ones because it's about how we think about the land. And this regenerative agriculture movement is something that I think aligns really well with it because these principles are the sort of the foundation for both. And I, I want to just take one step back of something you mentioned before, the quality of produce and the quality and the connection between the, the soil and, and the life and the biodiversity in the soil and the life and the biodiversity in us. I start to see, but it's mainly because I'm, I'm focusing so much on, on this uh, topic, that slowly we also start to see the connection between the quality we grow or the, with the amount of attention and the amount of work we put in the soil and the quality of the produce and the amount of nutrients in it. Is that something you see as well or is this something I happen to see in, in a few snippets around? No, I, I think you're on to something. Um, uh, and uh, my wife, Anne, and I wrote a book in between the Dirt book and the Growing a Revolution book. We wrote one called uh, The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. And in that book, we started to look into that question in terms of um, you know, what does it how does the way how does healthy fertile soil influence the way that that micronutrients get out of the the soil itself and into crops and then what are the parallels between the the functions that a microbiome serves in the root zone of plants and in the human gut and these systems are remarkably similar they're kind of this very similar the one is the other inside out and probably the lack of of research into these systems is also remarkably similar like what you just described on described on soil is probably the same on on our gut they're very parallel and so we in the hidden half of nature we went into those parallels the state of research in both things and what we came away with was the the assessment that um in terms of that the microbial communities in both systems are serving purposes that are essentially symbiotic with their host organism whether it's the plant or whether it's a person and they're facilitating nutrient transfer and acquisition, particularly of micronutrients and of the sort of precursors to the microbial metabolites, things the microbes produce that serve as precursors to things that our body will then make that are, are necessary for health. Um, and they also tee up our, and inform a plant defense system or our immune system. And they're involved in chemical signaling that just sort of helps us navigate our relationship to the external world. And... In, we sort of teed up in that book the question that you're asking of, of, well, to what degree does the way that we grow our food, for example, influence its nutritional quality for us? And Anne and I are now starting to work on a new book together that's going to look pretty much at that question because there's all kinds of connections between the way that, that say, the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil help to uh, acquire mineral um, uh, micronutrients, things like copper and boron and uh, zinc and iron, things we don't need a lot of in our bodies, 
but that are absolutely essential to the proper functioning of enzymes uh, and processes in our bodies that are, are critical to our health. And if you look at what's happened to the micronutrient concentration of food over the last 50 years, it's, it's dropped radically by a quarter to over half, depending which study you look at and which fruit, vegetable, meat, or, or dairy product you look at. Uh, but the overall trend is that you know, while we've been growing more calories, the quality of those calories in terms of all the other stuff we need for health have been declining. Um, and we're, we're digging into that now to try and look at um, more into the studies that have actually addressed that, um, of which there, there aren't enough that there aren't, we could use a lot more attention to this issue. Uh, we've tended to focus on the question of how do you feed the world with calories? And I think now we need to think a lot more about how do we feed the world with very high quality nutritious calories? And, and looking at that question, I mean, you, you haven't done the research yet on the book, but what, what do you think of these vertical farms, hydroponics that take the soil out of the equation? And there are a lot of arguments for it because it uses a lot less water. You can grow it in cities, etc. I always have the fear that you just described that we're missing something we cannot measure yet, but we might do in a few years on the nutrient level. But I don't know if you share that, that fear. That is a really good question. I think it's a very legitimate fear, and we're hoping to wrestle with that in the new book. Um, I, I can't give you a solid opinion on it at the moment because we're still sort of trying to figure out. It's a good cliffhanger, dude. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's a bit of a cliffhanger, but it's it's a very well-placed concern. I mean, and obviously things like hydroponics are going to be essential for space travel and things like that. Um, but, you know, whether we should be feeding cities that way, depends a lot on you know where do you get the micronutrients to put into the hydroponics because you if you if the if plants are getting a lot of their mineral micronutrients from the fungi in the soil that extract those elements from the soil particles then if you're growing hydroponically you have to add all those micronutrients yourself so where are you getting them from or are you growing micronutrient deficient food if you're not adding them um, and what's the energetics of how you get that stuff? If you know, if you're having to import copper from South America to feed your vertical farm in New York, that may not be very efficient. Whereas instead, if you just used the uh, the organic matter that the city produces as as garbage every day, and and composted that back to make soil, and then grew the same food in urban farms in soil, you might have much more nutritious food. Those are the kind of things that Ann and I are hoping to wrestle with a bit more uh, in the new book that we're starting to work on. Extremely, extremely interesting. And you mentioned it a few times, but I'd like to dive a bit deeper into that. Um, the profitability or the, let's say, the money side of things. You visited these farms and you said many of them are, are doing much better financially because of the lower inputs, because of, of maybe because they can sell quality as well. That's a separate discussion, but mainly because they are reducing their bills quite dramatically. Yes. And it was mainly from bill reduction because I, I, I visited you know, farms all over the world, mostly conventional farms, because I wanted to look at the, the question of could we actually transition um, modern conventional farms, uh, both on subsistence farms in the developing world and large operations in the developed world, could we transition them to much lower input use? I also visited uh, an organic farm, the Rodale Institute in, in Pennsylvania, to see whether or not these same principles could work in an organic system, and they, they can. Um, but I'm most busy conventional farmers, um, in part because I want that's where the real opportunity lies to sort of change the world, if you, if, if you will, in terms of how humanity tends to farm. And I was really impressed with, with how 
much savings there was from the reduced input use. Um, you know, if you can reduce the cost of one of your primary costs of production by half or more in a system, that's going to affect the bottom line of the system as long as it doesn't protect, uh, affect the output, your, your productivity. All the farms that I visited uh, after they'd made this transition had were growing increased yields, not decreased yields. Um, they were growing more food and spending far less on inputs to do it. Um, the yield bumps uh, in a few cases were quite significant. In most, they weren't all that significant. But to me, what the significance was is that they didn't lose yield. They were growing just as much, if not more, food. And so they were basically, you know, in terms of the effect on the farm's bottom line, the reduced cost of the inputs was money that went straight to the farmer instead of to his fertilizer dealer. Which is a, a nice shift in terms, if you look at the farmer, obviously not if you're selling fertilizer. Oh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, you know, with, with any kind of you know, major transition in thinking or technology, there's going to be winners and losers. And from my own perspective, I think it's about time the farmers won. Yeah, because they spend an, an, an insane amount of hours producing our food and many actually, uh, I saw some data last week, live under the poverty line, which is, is crazy because they cannot afford their own food um, if they would sell it. So if, if one of the main challenges you mentioned for a broader acceptance of uh, regenerative agriculture or conservation agriculture is crop insurance and policies. For impact investors, there is, of course, a lot of lobbying there to do and a lot of work on the philanthropy side, but on the investment side, not too much. What do you see after visiting all of these farms, both big, small, organic versus non-organic, what do you see as the role for uh, impact investors or investors in general that, that want to put money to work in this space and want to help this transition while making investments? Well, you know what? There are sort of three big big sort of things I, I think I identified at the end of the book uh, of sort of opportunities to promote this kind of thing. And, and one was the crop insurance. The other was uh, looking at setting up demonstration farms uh, to sort of show farmers how to adapt these practices so they don't have to run the risk of experimenting on their farm. And, and you know, neither of those are probably the best place to point individual or, or, or foundation investors to. But the, the third one is where I think there could be big opportunities, and that's in, in transition assistance and even sort of acquiring farms and leading them to, down this road of, of regenerative agriculture. There's an awful lot of farmland in the U.S., at least, that is leased out and farmed by people who don't actually own it. Um, and so there's, there's a problem there. And I talk about this historically in the Dirt book, uh, the problem of sort of tenant farmers having an interest, no long-term interest in rebuilding the fertility of their land has been a real problem. And that, I could trace that problem all the way back to the Roman Empire. It's been a huge problem in farming for a long time in different areas. Um, so I've, I've run into some uh, people and organizations that are working with farmers to essentially uh, um, purchase farms that have been degraded, farms, farmland that is relatively cheap because the soil's already been degraded, and then buy it and transition it to regenerative farming. And if it can be done profitably in real time, but build value in terms of the fertility of the land over time. Um, you know, to me, it looks like a good investment. There was a time in the 1940s you know, and 50s when farmland was valued by the organic matter content of its soil. You know, how fertile is the land? And now we value it by how much, you know, what we can harvest with large agrochemical inputs. It's been sort of divorced from the native fertility of the land. 
Um, as we look out to, you know, what's going to be, what's going to form the value in farmland in, you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now, as we try and transition off of our, our over-reliance on fossil fuels, land that you can farm intensively and produce a lot of food on without using a lot of those inputs that will in all likelihood get more expensive through the rest of this century. I mean, that seems to me as a real investment opportunity. No, definitely. Look, looking at especially long-term focused. I mean, that that's the key here in general. It's the key for for any farmer that wants to leave the land maybe to, to their children or to any generation after the land. And, and that's the perspective. You know, as a geologist, I can't help but come from that perspective because to me, you know, if we could make this transition in 30 years, that's remarkably fast. Yeah, you think in centuries normally or, or even longer. Yeah, exactly. Centuries are, are round-off error, you know, <laughs> in terms of geologic time. Um, but we don't have centuries to solve this problem. We need to do it much faster. And that's where um, I'm, I'm hoping that these kinds of ideas catch on and spread among farmers around the world. Um, and I just uh, was just at a conference yesterday um, back east where I was introduced with, to um, a gentleman from Cornell who had used ideas like this in terms of building um, uh, more productive rice uh, systems in Asia and had had great success, uh, not only in growing more food with less inputs, but in growing food that had better micronutrient um, density. Uh, and so I think that hopefully that we're on the cusp of really rethinking how we do agriculture. Which hopefully even means that, maybe even means that you need less of it if there's more in it that you need. I mean, like less empty calories and more nutrient ones, which would help even more in this equation because we still have to feed probably nine slash 10 billion people. Exactly. So final question. Let's imagine there's a, there's a gigantic room full of uh, impact investors listening to this podcast. They're all interested. They are on board. They, they want to get into the regenerative agriculture space, into conservation. They want to put their money to work. What would be your uh, piece of advice, of obviously not investment advice, but where would you, what would be your piece of advice? Where to start? What would be the first step for you? You mean other than supporting us to write the next book? <laughs> Definitely. Buying the book is a first, but they've read the book, they bought the book, they bought 10 copies for their friends, and now they want to do something with their investment capital. Well, you know, I think that if there's um, uh, looking at how to partner with uh, or put together networks of people to look at either providing transition assistance to farmers, uh, whether in terms of short-term loans for new equipment that they needed to buy or, um, or just sort of financially backstopping someone taking the risk of a transition. And, you know, anytime you change practices, there's at least a perceived, if not real risk. Um, and uh, that's the bottom part of the hockey stick. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and also sort of thinking about what, what the opportunities are for uh, um, partnering with farmers at, to, uh, to take degraded land and turn it back into productivity. Something like a third of the world's farmland has already been abandoned due to soil degradation. That problem of feeding the world you mentioned of the nine or 10 billion person planet would be a whole lot easier if we restored the degraded farmland around the world. So I'd encourage people to think about the model of, of trying to acquire farmland that has been degraded and turn it around. Um, basically rebuild its fertility and turn it back into a net asset. I think that's, that's amazing advice. Thank you so much, David, for, for sharing. I will definitely be checking in when the new book comes out because I think it's one of those pillars or one of the, the legs of the stool we're missing or we're going to hear a lot more about if we would talk like in a year from now. I think 
a lot of the things we discussed would be quite obvious. Um, so I'll be checking in and I'll be following you. And uh, thank you so much for your time uh, this morning. I know it's very early. Great. Well, thanks. I uh, appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk. And if anyone's interested in following us on Twitter, we are active there at uh, with our tag of at dig, then the number two and grow, at dig to grow. And we can keep people updated on stuff we learn along the way and, and about when the new book will come out. Perfect. I will definitely link it, plus a lot of the things we discuss in the uh, show notes down below. Okay, great. Pleasure to talk to you, Con. You just listened to an interview with David R. Montgomery. If you're interested in more, please have a look in the description below for the links to his books, where you can learn a lot more about the fascinating examples of farms and farmers which went against most of modern agriculture science and build up a lot of soil real fast. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have any comments or ideas for future guests, please share them on SoundCloud or Twitter. And if you think this content is relevant or interesting for someone else, please feel free to share the interview. And I hope to see you again here soon for more of these type of interviews. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.